Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and on this special Meet the Expert episode, we're talking about the venture debt market with Matt Trotter, a managing director within Stiefel Bank's venture division. Given the dislocation of the regional banking market in early 2023, we discussed how venture investors and companies should think about the supply of venture debt today, the proper uses of the product, and what we should expect moving forward of venture debt in general. I hope you enjoy what I believe is a very insightful discussion on a topic that so many founders and investors are trying to decipher today. Samir Kaji is the CEO and co-founder of Allocate. Allocate and Venture Unlocked are independent of each other. Any statements or references made by Samir or his guests regarding third parties, investments, or securities are solely their views and opinions and are not intended as investment advice or an endorsement of such parties or securities by Samir, his guests, or Allocate. Allocate or its clients may maintain relationships with or investment positions in guests, third parties, or securities mentioned in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Matt, it's great seeing you. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Samir. You and I have known each other for a long time. Going back to our days as venture lenders at SVB, I started in the late 90s. I think you started a few years later. So much has changed in the venture market, in the lending markets, and an area that I know a lot of people are thinking about is not only have we seen the constraints of the equity markets, but with SVB and FRB and some of these other institutions going through this massive dislocation this year, a lot of startup companies are thinking about how do I now augment my equity with venture debt? And maybe a good place to start, Matt, is giving a quick background on yourself, your background, and then just defining what is venture debt. Nice to know you. My name is Matt Trotter. Um, I'm with Stiefel Venture Bank. Uh, I've been in venture banking about 18 years. Uh, so as Samir mentioned, we actually started together. I was a junior associate on the same team that, that he was on. You know, I've spanned during that period kind of a number of different industries, a number of different types of companies at kind of all stages. I'm currently at Stiefel Venture Bank. So, you know, Stiefel's been around since about 1890s, has three main arms, an investment bank, a wealth management practice, and then a commercial bank, which which I sit in today. Um, and we do kind of early stage lending uh, as well as commercial banking or growth stage venture back companies. And so if you think about venture debt, you know, the history dates back to kind of the beginning of venture capital. And, and venture capitalism, when you had these kind of companies that were raising chunks of equity to go invest in growth and to build IP. And those companies might have had values in the tens of millions of dollars, even higher, but they couldn't even get a credit card because they weren't going to be profitable for a long period of time. And so venture debt was a tool that could be used by these companies to be able to buy servers and buy computer equipment and to to augment the equity that they that they had raised in order to do just basic kind of banking things. Um, and the banking system at that point really wasn't designed for, for these companies. How it's evolved today with kind of software eats the world, not as much need for kind of hardware for a vast majority of kind of companies out there. It's largely today venture debt is used for kind of runway extension. So it's a way to um, augment the highly dilutive equity with a less dilutive or minimally dilutive product um, that they can use to kind of add on to the equity that they have. You know, they can use that to maybe achieve a milestone to get a higher valuation. Sometimes it can be to time their raise better. So there's been certain periods of time where if you had to raise your round this month, uh, if you think of like in 2008, if you had to raise at that moment, and couldn't extend a little bit longer, your company went out of business. And so 
in in some cases it's kind of extending that 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 on and then in certain cases we're seeing a little bit of a resurgence of hardware and deep tech stuff where there is actually equipment and things that kind of need to be to be bought and then in terms of kind of just the terms that come with it you know high level it's it's largely kind of a non formula loan so it's not based on kind of any formula it's right sized usually around kind of some some percentage of the equity that you raise you have usually a year plus to to kind of choose whether you want to use it um, and then you start paying it back over, you know, usually around three years or so with the the raise, your next raise that you have. And then the cost, it's usually kind of an interest rate, a small fee and an award component, which is kind of the, the, the equity part. And then who is eligible? It, it's largely venture backed companies. Um, and you're usually in putting it in place kind of alongside an equity round. So, you know, it's usually a good um, hygiene to kind of do relatively close to kind of when you when you raise. If I can, if I can maybe play that back a little bit. So you know, going back in the early days when when companies had to buy servers, it was really equipment leasing was you know really what it was to finance those without using really expensive uh, equity dollars. Over time, it's become more of a general purpose type of financing to augment an equity round. But when we think about you know, the companies, many of these companies often have no revenue, no product, but ultimately the banks like in the past Silicon Valley Bank, which we were both a part of, were comfortable lending against these companies after an equity round, even though the length of the the venture debt was usually three or four years. And maybe the company with the equity round only had two years of cash. How do lenders underwrite these early stage companies that have no revenues, no product, and providing this financing that actually extends out in terms of when it fully pays off way past when the company is going to be cash out. It's quite unique uh, of, of a product compared to kind of what most banks would offer. Um, now it's become more common where there's a number of banks that kind of offer this to venture back tech companies. But if you take someone who had kind of a normal underwriting background at a bank, and said you're going to lend to cash flow negative companies with no assets, they would would say, why are you doing that? From an underwriting perspective, you're kind of looking at three main things. You're looking at kind of who the investors are and their capacity and history of continuing to support their company. So you're largely, you know, most of these companies have 12 to 18 months of runway. You're underwriting a four-year loan. You're, you're, you're underwriting this company's ability to raise that next round of equity. So Having an investor that has a dedicated fund, hold reserves, and that has shown them continuing to support companies is really important. Then you're also looking at kind of the management team, their history, their ability to fundraise, their ability to execute on plan. Um, and then lastly, you're kind of looking at the market. You know, is it a market that you believe has a wide universe of, it, of investors um, that they, they can kind of garner Garment interest to kind of raise raise more equity. Now, the other part that that is key of kind of what all makes it all work is you do get warrants in these kind of early stage companies. And so, if you look at like the track record of of these banks that have kind of done this over a long enough period of time, the warrants are higher than the losses that you take, even though the losses for early stage venture debt are higher than a bank would normally be comfortable with. And so, you do get you know. You know, these Series A warrants in Airbnb and Fitbit and these other you know big companies that um, you know you get in when they're they're very small, but when they ultimately exit, those end up paying for the losses that you have on the on the other deals, which kind of ties it all together. 
right? It's, it's essentially getting as part of the compensation structure stock options in the the company itself, and you know, at least historically, what I've seen is loss rates depending on the year, maybe two to five percent at the early stage level, and then you have your warrants. Some of them are hit, and it's that power loss. So the ones that do hit, you know, tend to do very well and kind of offset some of the losses. But one of the things you mentioned there, Matt, is the underwriting against the venture sponsor. So company raises a you know Series A round, they raise fifteen million. You know, you layer on what at least over the last decade has been a decent amount of venture debt on top, maybe three to five million dollars. When that happens, you know, it seems like from a company standpoint, you're getting cheap runway, at least historically cheap runway over the last decade before interest rates rose. And in talking to some VCs, you know, some VCs wrote, once a company raises Series A, go get venture debt no matter what. It's a cheap insurance policy. Now, there are other venture investors like Sequoia who have said, we actually don't think that many companies should just automatically default to getting uh, venture debt. They should wait until, you know, maybe they have some demonstrable traction. There's other things that, you know, we can leverage like ARR or accounts receivable. When is it right for a, a company to take on venture debt? And maybe you can talk both on the pros and cons of making the decision and taking venture debt at the Series A. So I think, you know, from a macro perspective, there's one element of that's happening is around the interest rates increases. So it's not, it's not inexpensive kind of free money. Um, so with Wall Street, a lot of these loans are based off Wall Street Journal Prime. With Wall Street Journal Prime at 8.5% today, you know, you're still, it's a, it's a high kind of single digit you know, to maybe low double digit kind of interest rate that you might be paying for this. So it's not uh, exactly low cost money. I will say that I don't actually think that part of it is that big of a deal because usually with venture debt, you're kind of only keeping it out for a short period. So like the interest rate, I often don't focus maybe as much unless you can't pay it back. So in certain, some of these, and we'll get into kind of the terms and the things you have to be worried about, but as long as you can pay back the loan when you have a successful raise, then, you know, it served its purpose. You pay interest for a short period. So what are the downsides of kind of taking venture debt? One is if you can't get out of it. So in certain cases, there is prepayment penalties and things like that, that you are signing up for then a, a pretty expensive chunk of capital for three or four years. So when you're taking it, your company will hopefully be stronger over that next period of time and will be able to leverage lower cost forms of debt financing during that period of time. You don't want to preclude yourself from that. You want to make sure that you're checking to make sure what's it going to take for me to get out of this, make sure that you have as much optionality as possible. The other is, I think, kind of over leveraging companies. What, what ends up happening is if you take on too much debt and you're not performing well, and then you come back and you have to do that inside round or that not great round, and your investors are coming back to the table and they look and they say, we're going to give you $10 million dollars. Five million of that is going to go to pay debt payments. They're not very happy, and, and it, it's not uh, a great situation for them to kind of fund into. And so, what I've found is 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 right now where you have companies that can't go raise an outside round or don't want to go raise an outside round because of the valuation, they have a really large debt load, and they haven't formed. And they're looking, you know, they want their investors to step up with just a small amount of money to keep going. Uh, it ends up having being kind of an issue because most of that money is going to go to debt payment. And in today's market, of course, like we've, you know, we were in the ZERP period for, you know, the better part of a decade. 
since you know 2022, everything has shifted, and the the capital equity markets have you know changed pretty materially, right? So if you look at what's happened, Series B, B and on, the number of rounds has gone down significantly, um, and it's has been the case that many of these companies have had to take some measures to stay viable, whether it's reducing headcount, getting an inside round. Many of those companies are actually saddled with a lot of debt and are in these situations where they're talking to the inside investors for a small amount. But when the venture investor looks at the balance sheet and sees several million dollars of debt that needs to be repaid, the amount of equity needed to create an accretive effect is higher. What are you seeing on the ground right now with companies that are in these situations? I think those companies uh, are having a hard time or it's it's almost like all the the lenders and the equity investors are having to come together to kind of come up with a solution. If you have equity investors and lenders who are willing to work together and have a long history together, I'm seeing deals get done. So finding everyone is going to have to take you know, some risk, everyone isn't, is going to have to kind of double down or kind of stay involved with the company. The, the equity investors won't come in unless the the lender will move and, and do some concessions. Everyone kind of has a little bit of pain in, in a deal gets done. In situations where there's not a great relationship or there's not a lot of trust built there, then I think companies will struggle to raise and they'll ultimately go down the sale process or something like that because they're not able to kind of bring in that equity, or they're just saying pay off the debt and kind of close close shop. It is interesting from a macro perspective where we talked about a couple different events of like the equity markets were already strained and there was already valuation concerns. And then there was kind of the bank fiasco that happened that, you know, threw all that up upside down. Those were totally different and they were kind of removed from each other. But it was interesting that the equity markets being strained make the, the, the actual demand for debt a lot higher. So when there's uncertainty in the market, or you also don't want to value, put a value in your company, venture debt is a way to get capital without having to put a valuation on, on your business. So before the bank, the SUV bank run and some of the other consequences of that, demand for debt was incredibly high. And then you have all the stress that got put on it of you know all the disruption and players going in and out of that market. That made it kind of harder to get. So it, it has been a situation where I've seen the demand for debt or venture debt is really high. And in a lot of cases, companies are very interested uh, to you know put it on the books to, as an option because they their options are limited in certain cases. But those are also the situations that are probably the toughest for banks to kind of lend into. Um, and one thing I mentioned is you're largely underwriting to what is the next round, you know, the company's ability to raise the next round of equity. When you have a company that seems to have a huge valuation overhang, it's very hard to confidently predict that they're going to be able to raise that next round given where their valuation sits today. So I'd say those are also the hardest kind of deals to do. Whereas in a fresh Series A that was done a month ago is totally different than a Series D company that's sitting on a several billion dollar valuation that seems quite overvalued. Yeah. So the, so the net new deals maybe price in you know, what's happening in the equity market. So you have valuations that have kind of reverted to pre-2021. Maybe AI is the one exception, which, you know, appears to still be, you know, fairly red hot in terms of valuations, amount of capital going to some of these companies. But when you think about demand and supply, so you, you mentioned demand for venture debt during the dislocation macro from a macro perspective. 
you know, went higher because you needed capital to run these companies, but less equity was uh, available to you. But at the same time, you did have a supply disruption when, you know, Silicon Valley Bank and other banks that were lending, you know, went under. And of course, you know, there's been offshoots, there's been new banks, you know, Stiefel now, you know, doing early stage venture debt. But I would also surmise that some of these supply decreases, underwriting standards have changed because the risk of a company getting a series B or a series C round is materially different than it was anytime probably from 2013 to 2021. So what is available to companies and how are banks and maybe even venture debt funds, if you can speak to that, how are they underwriting companies differently today? And how drastic of a supply issue is it for companies that are demanding venture debt? You know, everyone has FOMO. So like, you know, everyone, you know, and so when the capital was just flowing, you'd have to, you'd want to have a hard standard of say, oh, is this pre-revenue company really worth, you know, a billion dollars? And, and then you'd see five companies get funded in that same vein, like the next week. And you'd be like, well, I guess so. You know, it was very hard to have a critical eye on metrics and what is appropriate valuations and where do you need to be to raise the next round? I'd say there's now it's a lot clearer or there's a lot, you can be a lot more disciplined around this is, this company is overvalued. And frankly, it leads to much more direct conversations with investors saying, let's be real. This company probably cannot raise an outside round unless they're willing to take a giant haircut. A, are they willing to do that? Or B, are you willing to step up? And what does that look like? And it, it actually is a better environment to be able to have, you know, these kind of, I'd say, direct conversations or direct kind of underwriting conversations around, you know, how are you going to raise that that next round? And so it's largely those kind of later stage companies that have not performed. I think, you know, it's the, it's, I look at it, we talk about it as like three categories, just the companies that have you know, either our brand new funding or later stage companies that have performed well, they're going to have access to capital. We can do this. There's the, the companies that um, are performing okay, have really great growth plans or cutting burn and are trying to kind of extend the runway. And if they hit those plans, they will be able to raise. In a lot of those cases, we're doing debt tied to those metrics. So it's like, sure, we'll, 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 we'll step in, but we got to tie it to tranching and you got to hit those milestones to access the funds. And then there's the companies that we just don't think are going to be able to raise. And those are, to be honest, a quick no, you know, that, that those are kind of the situation where we don't think um, debt's really appropriate. And so we kind of put them in those kind of three buckets. And I don't know if it's helpful to talk about kind of debt funds and banks and how they look at the world differently. And, and maybe just to maybe define that a little bit. So everyone knows bank lending, right? So banks, you know, taking deposits, using those deposits often case to, to make loans to, in this case, startup companies, venture debt funds essentially are taking third-party capital and deploying it through a fund structure. This is a question that comes up a lot from a lot of the companies and founders we work with is, you know, I have venture debt funds here providing me, what they're saying is much more flexible capital, larger amounts, but it's significantly more expensive because the hurdle rate's different. And one of the things people are trying to navigate through, especially in this environment, is how do I look at these two products and juxtapose the differences between bank venture debt and venture debt fund venture debt? And what are the pros and cons of each 
you know, avenues. So maybe you can speak to that. And there's a lot of myths uh, about this. So like I kind of like talk about what I believe is true or not. So first, I do think you need to think about kind of the, the cost of capital, the strategy, and then like the incentives. So if you think about a venture bank that is providing venture debt, so a commercial bank providing venture debt, one, um, they're using deposits to fund these loans. So that means the cost of capital is going to be very low, but they are more heavily regulated. So it's not like they can just have you know a huge $30 million loss and that's going to be totally fine. But they do report to regulators and have to kind of track their performance of a portfolio. And they have guidance of what they want to do. They also, the thing that's key, and this is the part that's kind of changing too, is a lot of the reason that venture banks are doing venture debt is not necessarily to make money off the venture debt, but it's to acquire new clients that are going to be great customers over time. So not only are you going to get you know them kind of over as a client now, but the ones that end up being breakout companies, banking is very sticky. And so they end up being clients for you for a decade. And the lifetime value of that type of company, just for all the great banking services that they're going to want to do and deposits and all these things, you know, it wouldn't be uncommon for, you know, us to do when a, when a series A business with a $3 million loan, and then that company goes and raises a $50 million series B that ends up on your balance sheet. And that's a great earner for us. And so the one part about the, the commercial bank deal is the requirement for banking requirement for deposits. This is an interesting sticky point, sticking point with kind of where the world has ended up kind of the, with this focus now on having segregated banking relationships and sensitivities around that, which we can maybe circle back on. But I think largely, you know, commercial banks are looking to do venture debt as a client acquisition engine. So that means that they're trying to take granular bets with their venture debt. They're not trying to do any one deal to be huge. Um, but to kind of grow that portfolio kind of that on the venture debt fund side, you know, they're going to make money off that transaction. So that's kind of it. So like they, they, or at least several transactions from, from a loan, but they're not making money off deposits and all the other things. And they're also, their cost of capital is, is LPs that, that have a certain return hurdle that they want for the risk they're taking. They need to be priced higher, but they also, the, the pro of that is they have the flexibility to not live within a box. They can go bigger sizes. They can do different structures that might make sense because again, it's usually smaller teams, um, not as much regulation and they're kind of, they're more beholden to the LP agreement as opposed to regulators, which kind of makes the, the approaches be uh, a little bit different in kind of how they're working with. One, one of the myths is that banks aren't going to let you use or venture banks aren't going to let you use the money for runway extension and venture debt funds are in my experience, I don't believe that's true. So, and I actually believe like a venture bank, they may come with a smaller proposal, but their intent is that you're going to use it for runway extension. They are not going to at that moment kind of, and I can't speak for all banks, but most of the banks that, you know, we all know that are, that have a history of doing this, that are, are committed to it. They understand that there's no financial confidence in these deals and you can use them for pure runway extension and are going to allow you to do. So, so maybe let's just walk through what that actually means. So a company hypothetically raises a $10 million Series A, they get a $3 million venture debt, a line of credit or line. They draw down on the line 12 months later. And let's say, you know, in month 24, the company is down to $3 million in cash and they owe $2.9 million in the debt financing because some is amortized down, maybe it's 2.7. 
at that time, what happens? What does that conversation dynamic look like between venture investor, who's the equity player, who you're relying on to fund the, the company further, the bank who has now debt that equals cash, and now the company that's sitting in the middle navigating between raising a new round of capital and also working with the bank to ensure that the bank is in a comfortable place. So I, I can only speak for kind of my experience. Everybody, every bank, you know, in situation kind of is different. But I, I think largely what ends up happening from a bank perspective at that period of time is the banker will just want more visibility or more constant conversation in terms of what is plan A, plan B, plan C. And the large goal is to not be surprised. So I think at that point, most of the, like the, the lender understands that there's nothing more to do. There's no getting your money, like calling your money back at that point. Like you're kind of, you committed to stick with it and you're going to be there and you're, it's going to use your runaway extension, but you'd like them to kind of the investors as well as the company to give you updates on the progress that they're doing towards that. So that internally you're able to kind of message that. The worst thing you want credibility from a lender perspective internally is that you you're you have a situation where you're like everything's great and everything's fine and they're going to raise money and then all of a sudden the plug gets pulled then you kind of lose a lot of credibility both internally but also with the regulators why why are why were you not kind of monitoring but it is important to kind of understand i think sometimes when things get tight founders are naturally thinking well this is the worst case scenario and my lender is going to pull my money and and the lender then starts asking more questions and they're like wow this is feeding exactly into what i was worrying about and i usually when i sit with companies on the other side i kind of i'm very explicit i'm like we're with you like you were using it for runway extension and we're going to support you through that what i need for you is i need transparency i need a lot of updates when i want to ask just so that i'm kind of tracking internally but just so you know there's no conversation happening behind the scenes where we're thinking about man how can we pull our money back and I think the thing that's nice about it is venture is a pretty small industry and it's very connected. I mean, just frankly, look at the SUV bank run. Like, you know, word spreads quick and like people take action fast. And if you were known for pulling cash and putting companies out of business, if that was like part of your playbook, in my opinion, you would be out of business very quickly because that would get around to folks really, really fast. And you know, you, you have to kind of be a good partner in this space because there's nowhere really to hide. Everyone is connected. So, so when you're navigating through these times, of, of course, transparency is important on both sides. And you addressed a little bit of, you know, what I was thinking of. And, and I hear this a lot of banks at the end of the day, when cash hits the loan amount, you're going to get a call every single week. Your, your board will. It gets really nerve wracking, creates a lot of stress. Whereas a venture debt fund, because of the lack of regulatory structure and the fact that they're charging more, they can take on more risk and fly closer to the sun. In your mind, are there, from a founder's perspective, are there scenarios where venture debt from a venture debt fund actually makes more sense than taking it on from a bank? I don't think that because of the structure that a bank or a debt fund will be more patient than the other. And, and there's examples of, of, frankly, either side, right? Like if you're a, a debt fund, usually the numbers are much bigger and taking a loss of that magnitude can mean the fund is destroyed and they don't have to work with every venture capital fund. And so there's been many examples of funds that 
did not take patient approaches because it would have ruined their fund or, you know, they had to protect LP money and they will take a more aggressive stand where banks are often more granular dollars that we've kind of accepted that is at risk. It's usually a small piece of a granular portfolio. I will say when a debt fund, I think, makes more sense, are those circumstances where the, the extra dollars that you need or you could garner from a debt fund, like there's a purpose. I need to purchase this you know, equipment to be able to unlock kind of a milestone that's going to drive huge valuations, or I'm looking to acquire a company or it gets me to profitability or something where like it, it, you know if i were looking at a 5 million dollar bank proposal and a 10 or 15 million dollar venture debt pr- fund proposal if that 10 to 15 million gets you something significant and is something where there's a like you clearly need that specific amount of money then i think it 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 feels like that's kind of more worth it and you know you feel really confident in kind of hitting the metrics and numbers that are needed to kind of support Right to the point earlier, I don't think you want that big fifteen million dollar debt number hitting when you have to raise a ten million dollar inside. It, it speaks to this, you know, item that I wanted to to cover, which is venture debt from a venture debt fund and venture debt from a bank. While very similar, might have different characteristics from a you know what is the actual product? It's the cost of capital. It's maybe the uh, the quantum of capital that's provided that are quite different, the partner on the other side, what is their long-term vision from the partnership standpoint, a bank versus a venture debt fund? I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. I think both are viable you know, sources of, of capital, but there's also been other sources of capital that have come up for startups over the last few years. And I'd love for you to touch on things like whether it's Pipe or CapChase or some of these other finance companies as a startup company right now, or even a venture investor, how should you be thinking about the debt markets at the early stage and identifying when is the right time to take debt and what is the right form of debt to take at any given time? What are some of the considerations? When I usually kind of start with this question, it's kind of what is what is the debt need of the company? In certain cases, it's purely just kind of runway extension. And then I think you need to then go match the product with what you're looking to solve. So, um, for example, like I think these ARR products or different type of uh, lending products are very interesting, but not all are created equal. And some will only allow you to borrow when you have a lot of cash, which like, okay, well, that you don't really, that's not your need. You don't have, you know, you don't have a problem of needing to borrow money when you have a lot of money. You want to be able to borrow a lot of money. Don't. First is starting with what the debt need is. In other cases, they're like, I personally cover a lot of deep tech companies. There's a lot of robotics companies who are selling as a hardware as a service model. We have, but others have kind of more products, hardware as a service products that, you know, are tailored towards that specific debt need. You know, in that case, because that's going to be in a really important debt need for a company, you focus on that. Similar with like project financing, clean tech or warehouse lending in fintech. It's like, if you're going to have something that's mission debt is going to be mission critical to your business, I would focus on that first as opposed to kind of the nice to have venture debt. And then I think with kind of the alternative products, you know, that are out there for the, again, I think it's the only thing you have to be careful about is really understanding kind of when you can use it and what the true cost of of those are. Because they can be a little bit just like leasing or any of these factoring kind of programs. It's not always incredibly clear what you're paying for 
you know, on these loans, just like interest can be quoted in monthly or they'll pay you 95 cents on the dollar for a receivable, but that ends up being like a 25% IRR on that piece of capital. So, and then you got to make sure that, you know, you're really clear on, is it a committed facility or is it not at will facility? Are you able to use it when you really want to use it? Every business is different and there's more and more, more venture back businesses that are moving towards cash flow positive. And, but if you're a cash flow negative business, you largely don't need money when you have money and you need money when you're getting, it's getting low, you know, it's okay to use it when you have money. That's not the downside. But if you're not able to use it, when you have, you know, lower liquidity, when you're getting towards a raise, then the value of that debt is, is significantly diminished. And so better understanding and, and ensuring that is the case, which again, some, and, and there, there's a wide variety in some cases that ARR lender is totally fine with that. And in some cases they're not. In the area of maybe, and and I appreciate you going through it because I think those are important points of actually looking at the finer details of a debt proposal, understanding what the true cost of capital is to kind of go back to what we said, avoiding surprises, because if you're relying on debt to be there and it's not there when you, when you need it, that obviously can be catastrophic for a company to remain an ongoing entity. Where I'd like to end maybe is Going back to March of this year. So March of this year, we've touched on this many times. SVB was the dominant player in provided venture debt from a banking perspective to early stage, you know, venture back companies. While SVB still operates under the uh, the wing of First Citizens Bank, there is a lot of you know consternation in the marketplace of how does this gap get filled? Is there going to be enough? supply to meet demand, which is going to continue to rise by the number of companies. How do you see this playing out? Uh, you know, for me personally, I'd been at SUB my whole career. I started as like a, a, a an analyst at the bank. I spent my whole career there. And so this whole thing was an incredible shock. And it was for a lot of folks, you know, both at SUB, but also investors and companies. You know, if I tell my story, everyone tells their story. And it was a, a very rough kind of handful of days or months kind of kind of figuring out. Now that we're kind of, you know, five, six months past it, you know, I will say, and this is begrudgingly because like, I really wish I had my own opinions of if this really needed to happen and, you know, I, I wish it never did. But I think like things are settling down where it's actually an environment that's going to be pretty favorable for at least in the near future. So a number of new options have kind of emerged. So lenders who are banks who wanted to get into the space, who now are use this, you know, as an opportunity to jump in and invest it in teams and capital to do that. But also, you know, the existing players like SUB and, and others didn't go away. Like they, they're still very active and, and are providing, you know, term sheets to companies too. And so, you know, instead of having kind of one option, one really good option, you know, you have a handful of options to kind of choose from. I think what will likely happen is you'll find that different groups will end up tailoring to certain investors or certain types of companies or certain stages, it's going to be more complex to like for an individual company to know that. Whereas before you'd be like, go to FRB and SUV, like, great, go figure it out between the two of those, whichever one you like you choose. Whereas now it's going to be more like, okay, well, what, what space are you in? What stage are you in? Where are you located? You know, from a geography perspective, what's your needs? You know, do you have big international needs? Do you have, I think there's going to be a little more nuanced to kind of who you end up choosing. But I do think at least in the near term, there's kind of options. Um, and I do think for for everyone, it's going to be a little bit of wait and see of, 
everyone has to kind of venture debt is easy to put out. It's it's hard when you start losing money. When when we speak with kind of the the CEO of Stiefel and our credit team, like I am incredibly explicit, like we're gonna lose money. And and for a credit committee, that's like hard to stomach. But I am unequivocal, like we will lose money on this and you need to stick with it and commit to it. Because the warrant gains that you're going to get from these things are 10 years out. You know, they're not going to, that, that doesn't, that math doesn't work out for the first, you know, eight, nine, 10 years. And so you got to kind of commit to it. And so I think every, there's a lot of new players for me having a new owner with JP Morgan, and then you have to be a new owner. And then these new players coming in, I think it's going to be, uh, I think those are all good options. And I think they have good people at all of them and everyone's leaning in right now to support, which is great for the ecosystem. I think it's going to be one to kind of wait and see to see like, okay, making sure everyone kind of stays committed when things aren't always kind of rosy and, and you got to really like stick by your, by your metal there. I think that's the part that everyone has to be cognizant of, of, you know, we, we have kind of wait and see what that's called. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And, and I'm glad you brought up the notion of who the counterparty is. Similar to the equity markets, as a founder, you should really think carefully about whether the person across the table is going to be there during the the toughest times. And we've seen it before. There have been tourist lenders. And in certain cases, those lenders have not been there during the darkest days when the company needs the debt the most. And so it is such an important point to highlight. And as we move forward, it, it certainly will be interesting to see how the debt markets play out. I am excited to see the opportunity for more entrants coming into the market post what happened in Q1 of this year. But again, Matt, thanks for coming on. Appreciate the insights. Congrats on the uh, the new role. Thanks for having me. I think it's a, it's a unique topic and a unique time. And um, I think hopefully this was helpful for folks. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Matt and Stiefel Bank, be sure to go to Venture Unlocked Substack at ventureunlocked.substack.com. You'll also find us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review, as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked as soon as it's released.